Hi, everybody. My name is Conway, and I am an alcoholic. I, too, am a physician licensed to practice medicine and surgery. I'm the father of five wonderful children. And this is always the way that I begin my talk. You'll notice that I say that I'm an alcoholic first. This is the way that I live my life. My disease of alcoholism comes first. Because any time that I should ever forget that I'm an alcoholic, that I should ever place anything above my illness, I would probably go back to what I was. And I was the loneliest, the sickest, the sorriest, suffering human being that you can imagine. But today, thanks to the love and the mercy of a kind and a forgiving God, the strength and the hope from people just like you, and the living program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to be ashamed of me anymore. I don't have to run and I don't have to hide and I don't have to lie and I don't have to cheat. Today I'm somebody. And I'm proud of who I am. And I'm very grateful of who I am. And I just feel all filled up tonight with gratitude and with joy, and with the wonder of the miracle of the life that I live today, the wonder of the spirit of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, of you beautiful people who literally took me from the depths of despair into that deep, dark, black hole of depression to the ecstasy of the moment, of the moment that we have tonight. Oh yes, my friends, the magic of believing and the joy of living that comes from deep within inside. I want to thank you, Elmer, the members of the committee, for letting me be on the program tonight. This is quite an honor, and, and, I, and I want to thank you for letting me be here and to share. Uh, if there are any of you that are wondering, I don't come from this part of the country. We come from down on the coast of Georgia, and it's a very long ways from here, and I am so, so grateful that we have this opportunity to come see this beautiful country and see all of you friends. It's been some time since we've all gotten together, a year, and it's wonderful to be back where I know that I belong. 
I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and I lived there almost all my life. My father was a doctor, my mother was a teacher, I have an older sister. We come from a very close, deeply spiritually oriented southern family with all the traditions that go along with that. And we had a very happy life. I never ever really remember wanting for anything during my childhood. Not that we had so much. This was the uh, back in, in the Depression years, and there wasn't all that much to go around, but there was so much love and caring and sharing that I never ever remember wanting for anything. I had a very happy life up until about the age of 12. Somewhere along about the age of 12 was when I first remember experiencing the feeling or knowing that I was different. I was different from you. Oh, as a child might feel in a room full of adults, or as if I was surrounded by a glass cage, me and my things were different from other people. Not a feeling of superiority, not a feeling of inferiority, just different. I was different. As if I was not complete, I was not a whole person. I forgot to tell you about taking my first drink, though, and I... I took my first drink, John, when when I was about nine years old when I had the whooping cough. And whooping cough was a real serious illness back then. A lot of people died from the whooping cough, and I had the whooping cough. And I can remember these spasms of coughing and sitting there and in, in, in my little body with this cough, you know. One night it got so bad. I remember running down the hall. I grabbed my daddy around his legs. I stood there just racking in these spasms of cough. He took me into the bathroom. Remember, my father's a doctor. He stood me up on the sink. He reached in the medicine cabinet and poured out about that much alcohol and gave it to me. And immediately the coughing stopped. You see, my very first experience with alcohol, it solved the need, it gave me relief, and it stopped the cough. Now, I think that's interesting. I don't think it's got a thing in the world to do with me being an alcoholic, but I think it's interesting. What's significant about it, though, is the fact that I remember it so well. This is something that happened 45 years ago. 459 is 54. <laughs> and I remember it just like it was yesterday. It is a significant event in our lives. Those of us who have this condition, when we're first united with this magic elixir that then later on goes and changes our lives, how often you hear somebody describing their experiences with alcohol, telling their story. And they relate in detail their very first drink, where they were, who they were with, what they did before, what they did afterwards. It's a significant event now. Like you don't remember your first root beer or your first chocolate milk. Something happens. Now I had a fella come up to me the other day, and he and he and he said, "Doc," he said, "I finally figured out what's wrong with me." And I said, "What was that, Sam?" And he said, I was born a half a pint below normal. Now, now, I know exactly what he meant. 
and maybe from what the latest studies are coming out, we all were born a half a pint below norm. But anyhow, I went on and went to school. I was an overachiever. I made real good grades. I was usually at the top of the class, and I did real well. During my early uh, high school years, my mother became quite ill with a form of uh, progressive type of paralysis and died in my early teens. Now, this was a tremendous loss. I was very close to my mother. My father was a doctor and gone from home uh, most of the time. My sister's considerably older, so now I was alone. Alone and different from other people. And this is the way that I live most of my life. Searching for a place where I belonged, a place where I was accepted, a place where I was loved, and a place where I was needed. I know my family loved me, but for some reason it wasn't enough. And I certainly didn't ever feel like I was needed anywhere. I just sort of apologized for walking around or being there. Or you could all be in a room and... And, and be laughing and be talking and having a good time. And I walked in and it all stopped. I didn't belong. I was different. Made real good grades, joined many organizations and many activities and participated in everything that came along, but something was missing. I was not a complete or a whole person. I... I finished high school and went to college, and during my college years, I met I met one of the most beautiful girls in the world. She was the prettiest thing that you ever saw. She was she was short like me, and and she had dark dark hair and dark skin and and beautiful sparkling eyes, and and we fell in love. And I love that girl. I love that girl very much. I loved her with all my heart. And we were a perfect mate for each other. It was a storybook romance. And after a while, we got married. And we had two beautiful children. And then she, too, contracted a progressive illness. First she went insane and then she died. Another great loss, another great tragedy. I had a good bit of drinking in college, but it was no problem drinking. But now I began to drink more and more and more. I was accepted into medical school and now Alcohol is the most important thing in my life. As a result of this, my grades dropped from the top of the class down to the bottom, and I was lucky to graduate. But I did graduate, and I went to Grady Hospital in Atlanta, the big city hospital, as an intern. And this this was wonderful. It, I, I really loved. This was the early war time. There was a tremendous shortage of of everything, including doctors, and we only had four interns, four surgery interns for that entire hospital. 
And, and we really worked. We worked 36 hours on. We had 12 hours off. And it was go, go, go the whole time. You know, this side of the street to that side of the street. And operating room to delivery room to the wards to surgery. And it was uh, go from operating room to operating room. Just change gown and gloves and keep right on going, you know. And they never stopped for meals. They'd bring you a pint of milk, my ham sandwich, or a Coke Cola, or something like that, and you just kept right on working. So when the twelve hours off came, I was exhausted. So the only thing I was interested in was looking for a place to sleep. Also, for the very first time in my life, I'm providing a service to mankind. Now, I wasn't much, but I was all they had, and they appreciated it. (laughs) So you see, for either one or both of these reasons, I don't know which, I stopped drinking during this period of time. Alcoholism, as we know, is a chronic progressive disease. But it takes two things to make an alcoholic. One with a condition and alcohol. You put the two together... And you got alcoholism. I stopped drinking. I stopped the symptom. I finished my internship and then I went on into my specialty. I am a specialist. I'm a ladies doctor. And I never fail to take the opportunity when I'm in the presence of so many beautiful women. I want to thank you because you've been so good to me and my family, and we appreciate it. <laughs> this this is a wonderful, rewarding type of work, I, I, as you know, being at birth and creation. And, and I did love it, and uh, I really en- enjoyed uh, uh, delivering babies. And uh, most of the time you're dealing with normal, healthy, and happy people, but I'm, I don't do that anymore, and I haven't for some time. And the reason, of course, is now I spend most of my time working in the field of addiction with alcoholics. Being present, if you will, at the rebirth of so many people, and it's it's such a privilege. It's such a rewarding experience. Frustrating at times, but very rewarding being there. But anyhow, I, I finished my training. I, I met and subsequently married one of the nurses there at the hospital, and then I was drafted. But they don't really draft doctors. They just send you a telegram and say, you better. And, of course, I realized what the alternative was, and I took them up on their offer, and they sent me to Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And and that's where they send all doctors to make soldiers out of them. But they don't have any idea of making a soldier out of us either. This wasn't anything in the world except a six-weeks vacation with pay. And the pay thing was important. Because all those five years I was at Grady Hospital, all we got was $10 a month and all the milk you could drink, and that was it. But now I'm an officer, and I'm a gentleman, and I'm entitled to a salary, and I had a uniform, and I remember driving out to there, out down through Texas, out to Fort Sam, and 
A couple of very significant events took place. Number one, the shooting war had stopped. And everybody was celebrating the victory. Happy days are here again, you know. It's won the war and the victory is ours. And it was party time all the time. You never ever had to wait for Miller time. It was Miller time all the time. And and we, we went from the nickel beer to the martini party. You never ever had to look for something. You were usually right in the middle of it the whole time. And, and I loved it. I, uh, I said, I have arrived. This is it. And, and I love army life. I like uniforms and parades and bands and flags and, and, and all of these sort of things. They really, you know, I cry at parades and like, but, this is a real meaningful thing, and I just love it. Uh, six weeks is over, and I received orders to go to Orleans, France. Now, I never got to France. I got all the way to Fort Dix, issued new orders, and sent back down uh, to Fort Eustis, Virginia. They're in Tidewater, Virginia, at the transportation headquarters of the United States Army. Well, this was a wonderful thing because my wife couldn't go to France with me. She met me in Washington and we drove down through that beautiful Tidewater country and, and once again, everything inside of me was just coming up roses, you know. The sky was blue and the birds were singing and the grass was green and the flowers were blooming. You know, when everything is going your way, it's not hard to notice all the other beautiful things that are around you all the time. Well, I pulled into that army post and the MPs stopped my car and they gave me, asked me for my papers and I gave them my orders. They went back to the little command post and came out and they all stood up there in a line. Gave me a real snappy salute. I said, boy, this is a Class A outfit here. You see, unknown to me, the reason my orders were changed and I was reassigned to this Army post, the commanding general's wife was pregnant. And I was the one responsible for this military emergency. From the moment I drove through those gates, I was the commanding general's wife's doctor. Wherever the commanding general went, commanding general's wife went, commanding general's wife's doctor went. We took the yacht out on the James River, commanding general, commanding general's wife, commanding general's wife's doctor. We took the helicopters to New York, commanding general, commanding general's wife, commanding general's wife's doctor. Wherever the commanding general and his lady went, the little doctor went too. Just it's sort of like a mascot, you know. <laughs> and and I loved it. I I loved it. I wouldn't take anything in the world for this experience. And I loved Army life. Um, I I will say that she did finally have a nice baby boy, who I am sure someday will be a commanding general just like his father and his grandfather. And this will have to go as my contribution to the defense of our country. (laughs) 
I did love Army life, and I probably would have stayed, except for this childhood dream, this ambition that I had to come back home and work with my father. Now, uh, my father, my friends, was the greatest mortal man that ever walked the face of this earth, in my opinion. He was my hero, and he still is. He was the kindest, the gentlest. I could never, ever have even dreamed of having such a role model as this man was. I love my father more than anything in this world. First of all, I wanted to be a doctor like my daddy. And then, I wanted to work with him. And I was successful in both. And we had many wonderful times together. But we had some bitter tragic times together too. So I left the army and I came back to Atlanta to go to work and here I am, a native son returning home, uh, you know, back to school. I'd received my graduate training there. My father has a large practice, an excellent reputation. The members of the medical profession rolled out the carpet to welcome me back home and I was given more jobs and duties and committees and assignments and teaching in the medical school and, and all of these things, you know, or that, that, well, I thought they were doing about what they should. Because you see, now my ego is out of sight. They were doing about what they should, all except my father. And you know, everywhere I went, he went. And everything I did, he had to come check up on me. He was looking over my shoulder the whole time. I'd go down that hospital in the middle of the night, and I wouldn't be down there 15 minutes before he'd come down there too to see what I was doing. I'd turn around real fast, I'd bump into him. He didn't trust me. Here I was, a young hero returning from the wars, received the finest training the country had to offer, and I was ready to come in and take over and put the old man out in the pasture. I resented this. Now my wife started having children. I resented this. I resented these babies being born interfering in my life and giving me duty and responsibility and obligations that I wasn't ready to assume. And I resented these babies for being born, and I resented her for having them. I guess I thought she did it all by herself. But you see now what I have done. Turn away from the only two people that were really close to me, the only two people that really mattered. Alcoholics are perfect geniuses of alienating and hurting the ones that we need and love the most. But I didn't need anyone. I began to drink more and more and more. For a while I wouldn't drink the nights I was on call. Then I'd go out and I'd see the other doctors drinking. I said, if it's all right for them to drink, it's all right for me to drink. And it is all right for them to drink most of the time. With the exception of this room, of course. 
There's absolutely no question in my mind that this is the point in time that I cross over that invisible but completely irreversible line into the disease of active alcoholism. And once you go across that line, you don't ever come back the other way. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You don't ever become unalcoholic. Or as one of our friends says, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, you never go back to being a cucumber again. (laughs) And I was well pickled. This was the hard part of alcoholism. With all the running and the hiding and the lying. Quite candidly, I can say that almost every horrible thing that you have ever heard of an alcoholic doing, I have done. I'm not proud of that. And I'm certainly sorry for the people that I hurt along the way. My children bear scars that will never be erased. But I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm an alcoholic, that I have the disease of alcoholism. I was probably born that way. But I didn't know what was wrong with me. Now that I know what's wrong with me, it is my responsibility for the treatment. I am not responsible for the disease. I am responsible for the recovery. Anybody who's living the life that I was living and doing the things that I was doing, something had to happen to, and it did. Monday morning, October the 1st of 1962, I had a massive heart attack. I was taken to the hospital for a while. They didn't know if I would live, and I certainly didn't know if I would ever be able to work again. I became very depressed and very bitter. And this is where I turned against God. Why did you do this to me? Here I've spent all these years, all this time, all this money now, just to be a place where I'll be of service to you, to me, to mankind. Cast down here in the bed, helpless. Not even able to bathe myself. Why did you do this to me? I became filled with hate. I hated you and everything you stood for. Leave me alone. Don't send me any cars. Don't send me any flowers. Leave me alone in my grief. It's a wonder I didn't commit suicide. Looking back on this, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind. There was nothing in the world except the good Lord reaching down, grabbing me up, giving me a good shake, sitting me that back down and saying, Now look, who are you? Where'd you come from? And where are you going? A wonderful opportunity to get off of the merry-go-round, to get out of the rat race. All excuses made and all expenses paid. I got no benefit out of it. I left the hospital and I went down to live with my sister to recover, continue my recovery. And now my sister had moved down to a little island off the coast of Georgia called St. Simon's Island. 
And I want to take just a minute or two to tell you about St. Simon's Island. It's a very special little place. It's an enchanted little island. And it's very important in my recovery then and now. We live on this little island now. But as you drive across the bridge, you enter onto the island. One of the first things you notice is sort of like noticing here just how naturally beautiful it is. How rich and green and clean. And then you become aware of the peace. And the trees, these magnificent trees, our pine trees rise straight as an arrow into the sky, majestic in their nature and regal in their bearing. And the great live oak, these great live oak trees are 10, 12, 15 feet in diameter. They are the pillars of strength and stability. Each one of these trees is a picture story within itself. The Spanish moss is in the tops of the trees and the wind blows and the moss dances. And it is the Southland at its finest. And accompanying this is a feeling of peace and serenity that I've never found anyplace else. I know that when I am there, I am closer to my God than I am at any other place that I have ever been. Now, I'm not the only one that feels this way. And I want to invite you to come down to our little island someday and see if you don't feel this same peace and serenity, this enchanted little island just off the coast of Georgia. But don't all come at once. It's a very small little island. Don't all come at once. It's a very small little island. I stayed down there with her for a little while. I got stronger. I came back to go to work. But you know anybody who's had any trouble with their heart's not supposed to get nervous. And everybody knows that anybody with a heart problem is supposed to get a good night's sleep every night. So I had tranquilizers to keep me calm, sleeping pills to make sure I slept, and I washed it down with a pint of scotch every night. Now, I don't think they meant for me to do that all at the same time, but I did. And this is where I, too, started living totally by chemistry. And I feel fully qualified now to speak as a total addict. I took everything that was out at that time. I took everything except Miles Nervine and Lydia Pinkham, and I would have taken them too if they'd come in samples. So I took uppers and downers, and you know, I didn't have any of those new, new tricyclics that make it go all three ways, but I took everything else. I do want to say right now something about this phenomenon of cross-addiction, cross-tolerance which we've had reference to before. There's absolutely no question in my mind that any time that I should ever take any mood-altering, mind-changing, tranquilizing drug, I am interrupting my supply of strength, peace, happiness, serenity, sobriety. And it's only a matter of time that I'll go back to my drug of choice. And my drug of choice, my friends, is scotch whiskey. And I say it with reverence. 
scotch whiskey would, did everything in this world for me that I ever wanted it to until the very last, and then it took it all. Never found anything that would even come close. So I'm not going to fool around with any Melorel or Alavilla, Transine, or Syrax, or Librium, or Valium, or Ativan, or Nimutal, or Milltown, or smoke any of those funny no-name cigarettes, or get the misconception that that white powder called snow up my nose is going to be any different than I can handle it. I know if I ever go back to any other drugs, it's only a matter of time that I end up on Scotch whiskey. But anyhow, I rapidly got back into work. Several things happened. Uh, uh, one night we had a real bad emergency down at the hospital. They called me to come down. Now, now I was this wasn't my case, and I wasn't on call. But they needed somebody of my experience, and they called and asked me to come. And I got in my car and I raced down the highway, ego running wild. I'm a doctor on emergency, you see hoping the policeman might stop me. Pull into the emergency room, leave the lights on, the motors running, the car door open. Went in the emergency room, some sort of a combination of Walter Mitty and Superman. <laughs> Have no fear, Conway is here. And I went in, I took charge of the case, and everything would have been all right if I'd kept my mouth shut. You know, one of the last things we lose is our ability to perform and our trained skills. The case went real well. If I just kept my mouth shut. You know practicing alcoholics going to keep... I had to tell them how lucky they were to have me down there, and I did. The next morning I came to work, and people were standing around in little groups, and they were whispering to each other. They were whispering to each other, and they were looking at me. As one of my friends said, they were looking at me sort of slaunch-eyed. Whenever they're doing that, they're talking about you. And it didn't take me long to find out they were talking about me. I got called down to the administrator, don't ever come back to this hospital under the influence. I went out and I got in my car and I drove on, driving on over to the office. And I got to thinking about this and I just got filled up with righteous indignation. Here I went down the middle of the night to that hospital and saved that woman's life. And these narrow-minded, unappreciative people are talking about those two or three little drinks I had. I reached under the seat of the car and got that bottle of hot vodka. If there are any of you that have not experienced the thrill of drinking hot vodka. <clears throat> I don't recommend it. That sends chills up my spine now, but it does have authority. If you if you ever get one of those to stay down, you're in control the rest of the day. The insanity of it all, I believed it. I could not see that I had done anything wrong. They were the ones who had done wrong. Well, anyhow, as it often happens to alcoholics, I kept getting promoted, falling up the stairs, and I got put on the executive committee of the whole hospital. They called me to come to the executive committee meeting, and I went down that morning. I remember it real well. It was in December, right before Christmas, and it was very cold. I put on a suit, an overcoat, a muffler, gloves, a hat, and dark glasses. 
This was before daylight. And I went down to that meeting, and I went in dressed exactly as I described, and I went over and sat down, and I don't know what they were doing before I got there, but it all stopped. And once again, they all started staring at me. I knew they were looking at me. I didn't know what to do. So I passed out. I really shook them up. You know, they knew I had this trouble in my heart. They said, oh, my Lord, he's dead, Minnie. <laughs> me up in the arms and pulling the collar and oxygen over my nose and knocking those chairs around and bells were ringing and sirens were blowing and I was coming in and out of consciousness saying, please let it be a dream. Please let it be a dream. It wasn't a dream. When I, when I woke up, they had me in an oxygen tent, and they had something hooked up to everything you can hook up something to. And then the, then the doctors came in, and they listened to the heart, and they ran the heart tra- tracings, you know, and they looked at them, and then they frowned. There wasn't anything wrong with the heart. I was a medical mystery. <laughs> I saw the mystery for him. I went into the DTs. <clears throat> hired people, fired people, running up and down the hall of that hospital, you know, that gown that doesn't, and then with the, there was reindeers and angels and Christmas trees and elves, and some of it was real, some of it wasn't, but it was all real to me. Finally, they called my father and said, you've got to come get him. You've got to do something with him. We can't keep him here any longer. He's dangerous. My father came to get me, to take me to the local drunk hospital on Christmas Day. When I think how he must have felt. I remember entering this hospital, but I never remember leaving the hospital because they did all the wrong things that you can do. They gave me more and more drugs. And this is where I literally lost my mind. I don't remember much about what happened there at all. I remember entering, but I never remember leaving. The things that I do remember, none of them are pleasant. I remember being strapped down to the table all night long. I remember being locked in the room with the little peephole in the door and they'd come look at you every now and then. I remember being tied to the bed. I remember the straitjacket. I remember the screams. I remember the fears. I remember the pain in the back after the convulsions. One night the convulsions were so severe the nurse called the doctor in charge. What must we do? We can't stop the convulsions. The reply was, let him die. He's a hopeless alcoholic. There are times now that I wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be drenched in sweat. May I never forget it. May I never. And of course, that's why I'm doing what I do now. And thank God we've got treatment centers that not only provide the proper medical care, but treat the patient with respect and dignity. 
and instill a new way of living, a new way of life. I left the hospital once again. I went back down to St. Simon's Island. I didn't drink. I didn't take drugs. I must have been sort of like a zombie. I, I had no brain. But I would get out and I would walk, and it was in the dead of winter. And I'd walk along the sandy roads, and I'd walk along the shore. And something began to happen inside of me. And I became aware of the tremendous power that was present there. As you walk along the shore, when you hear the mighty ocean roar, when you feel the pull of the tide, when you see the fishes or the birds in flight or even the little fiddler crabs, these things didn't just happen. Something was happening inside of me. As I sat underneath the great oak tree, I experienced a feeling of peace that I had never known before. The best way that I can describe it was the absence of fear. I wasn't afraid. But yet I had lived all of my life afraid. But as long as I was there, I was safe. As I must have felt when my mother held me in her arms. I left and I came back <clears throat> to go to work. Go to work. I didn't know if I'd have a job or not. You know, it's not much secret what's wrong with you when you go into the DTs. And this is where my friends in the medical profession almost killed me with kindness. They'd been covering up for me for a long time anyhow. They had a special meeting and called me down. I didn't have to say a thing. They said, we want you to come back and go to work with us. We know you've had this trouble with your heart. We know you've been taking this medication. We know you've been working these long and hard hours. Come on back and go to work, but keep it under control. Keep it under control. At this point, I was a hopeless addict to the drug alcohol. There was no way I could keep it under control. I couldn't go over two hours at a time without taking a drink. This was the horror part of alcoholism, with all the running, the hiding, the lying, the cheating, living in fear. The feeling of doom and impending disaster. The next step that you take, you're going to fall off the cliff. The telephone rings in the middle of the night. Panic sets in. Who is it? What do they want? You wake up in the morning and you wonder what you did the night before. Keep it under control. There was no control. I wasn't drinking because I wanted to. I was drinking because I had to. I did not know how not to drink. I went back down to the hospital. They stopped me. They sent me home. And once again, I went back down to St. Simon's Island. This is where I was first introduced to AA. And I went to a meeting down there that night the only way that I could, just as high as a George Pine. And that's okay, because it was the only way that I could go. And thank goodness nobody there stopped me and sent me home and said, Alcoholics Anonymous is just for sober alcoholics. If I had been rejected one more time that night, I'd not be alive today. 
I didn't drink. I didn't go. I didn't go back to many meetings, though. But I would go out and walk, and I'd walk along the road, and I'd walk along the shore. I'd watch the wind as it blew across the savannah marshes, and something was happening in me. I knew that I no longer wanted to live the way that I was living. But I didn't know how not to drink. I left and I came back. I continued to go to AA, but I resumed drinking and taking drugs. I never did drink when I was on the island. But I got back to Atlanta and I started drinking and taking drugs again. Several people tried to work with me and tried to help me. I, I wouldn't let me. I wouldn't let you help me. I wouldn't let you see inside. I wouldn't let you see how miserable and how rotten it was in there. I couldn't stand it. I wasn't going to share it with you. No, leave me alone. You with all your, your phony smiles and your, your handshakes and your easy does it's and, and they, I don't need you. Oh, but I did so bad. One night it got real bad. <clears throat> this fella came out to the house to talk to me, and and uh, he's now my sponsor. He's a real big guy. He's six feet four inches tall, weighs 250 pounds, and he's a finger pointer. And he came in the house that night, and he took my inventory like it had never been taken before or since. And he and I got into a serious conversation. And I resented this. I rose up all five feet and said, you don't have any right to come to my home and talk to me this way. Here I am, a man with two college degrees, two cars and a carport, upstanding citizen. And remember this? He said, you remember that when the sheriff comes out here. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I said, you don't have any right to do this. I didn't call and ask for help. We can never, ever help anyone unless they want our help. But I didn't say don't try. He hung his head and walked into the door, and immediately I knew I had the advantage in this situation. So I was right behind him, just like a little feisty dog. I'd nip him every time he stopped. And I backed him up into the corner there in the kitchen, and I said, why do you do this? Do you do this because you hate me? And he looked down at me and he said, no, Conway, it's not because I hate you, it's because I love you. Here's a six and a half foot giant standing there in my kitchen telling me that he loved me. I wish that I could say that I stopped drinking then. I didn't. It was two days later. Two days later, I went to the living room of the house. My family had all gone. They had to leave for their own safety and their own sanity. And there I experienced my moment of truth. My mind became as clear and capable of sane and orderly thought as it has ever been before or since. It was as if all of the lights came on and I could see reality for the very first time and I could see me as I really was. And I was able to destroy all this false pride and this arrogance and this dissolution of character. 
And I became completely willing to surrender and turn my will and my life over to the care of God as best that I could. I forgot to tell you, when I went in that room, I had my pistol in my hand. I no longer wanted to live the way that I was living. I fell on my knees and I said, God help me now. God help me now. I put the gun down. Immediately I thought about this doctor that I'd heard about that lives down in South Georgia. I called him. I went down. I lived with him in his home. There, in addition to him, there were people just like you. And this was where I was first introduced to the phenomenon known as unconditional love. You didn't ask me who I was or where I'd come from or what I'd done. You knew that I was lonely. You knew that I was afraid. You knew that I was sick. You took me into your hearts. You took me into your home. You put your arms around me. And you literally loved me back to hell. Love is the greatest healing power that has ever been known. You loved me back to hell. Wasn't all a bit of roses though. This doctor did believe in withdrawing and I withdrew with just withdrawing. Second day I was there, he came and he said, we're going to a meeting tonight. And I said, going to a meeting? I can't even put on my pants. We went to a meeting that night. <clears throat> there I picked up the white chip, the surrender chip, that enabled me to go on to the blue chip that I have today. Many, many other wonderful things that happened. I came back to Atlanta. I immediately got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. I did everything that you told me to do. I went to the meetings early and I set it up and I made coffee and I emptied the ashtrays and all of the things that you told me to do. I was very shy though. I didn't talk for a long time and I couldn't. I became very active and very visible in the medical profession as a recovered physician. I also became very active in the recovered community as a recovered doctor and both of these are very important to me. After a while, I got back on the hospital staff and got to working with my father again. I, You know, I even got to be a member of that same executive committee that I passed out in that time. Later on, I was chairman of the board of trustees <clears throat> on the recognized once again in my chosen specialty of gynecology, which I don't do anymore. But also now getting involved into the other phase of treatment, which has been very successful and very good to me. I was very busy. I'm gone from home a lot. Late one Sunday afternoon, I was coming home, and, and I went in, and I changed clothes. My children were all out in the yard. They were playing catch. And I went out to 
speak to them before I left, and they stopped their game. They looked at me, and they said, where are you going, Dad? I said, I'm going to a meeting. They looked at each other. They stopped their game, and I knew what they were thinking. Come on out and play ball with us, Dad. We haven't seen you in a few days, Dad. Come on out and share with us. They didn't say that. They said, have a good time, Dad. I love you, Dad. See you in the morning. Got in my car and drove on to the meeting, but I stopped because the impact of what they told me registered. These were the children that I had abused. These are the children that I had mistreated. These are the children that cried all night. Where is Daddy? What's the matter with Daddy? Why don't we have a Daddy like the other kids, Mom? These are the children that had to pick me up and put me in the bed. These are the children that had that deep, dark secret inside. They couldn't tell you what happened in their house last night. Have a good time, Dad. I love you, Dad. I'll see you in the morning, Dad. Why? They've got a daddy now. They've got a daddy they not only love, they always love me, but they're proud of me. As long as I live, I'll never forget school bus stopping right in front of the house. My little girl jumping down the steps. She's a cute little thing, just about that tall, the long blonde hair, the ponytail, and sparkling blue eyes. And she ran up the hill and into the house. And then I could see the tears streaming down her little face. And then I could see the big blue wet spots on her little dress. And then she came over and dropped her books and grabbed me around the waist, sobbing, and looked up into my eyes. And when she could talk, I said, Susan, what's wrong? She said, Daddy, on the school bus, they called you a drunk all the way home. I'll never forget the look in those eyes. She's a big girl now, and they all are. She helped take care of me. I lived alone for a good while. Not too long ago, she wrote me a letter and said to the dearest dad, I am so very proud you are my father. I love you with all my heart. I'm very grateful for the fact that my father lived long enough to see me back in the Specialty, and we worked together for five more years. He was very grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but he never could say AA, though it was always AAA. I've been very successful. I've been very fortunate. Conferences, organizations, travel. I have literally been fortunate enough to go around the world sharing my my strength and my hope. And I think that I had accomplished just about all that I had to accomplish. And I began to feel a little empty. A little flat and a little apathetic. And once again, through his infinite mercy and wisdom, God showed me just how much he loved me. 
Usually when he wants to get our attention, he does it through pain. But this time, while attending a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on St. Simon's Island, God realized in me an emptiness that I didn't know existed, a loneliness that I did not feel, that once again I was incomplete. And while I was standing there at that meeting, I watched the sunlight bounce off of the water and through some trees. And it cast a beautiful radiant glow around a beautiful flower. And there was the instant recognition then that once again, a significant event was taking place in my life. And that, my friends, is where I met my wife, Charlotte, the beautiful flower. We were married four months later. And once again, my life was fulfilled, filled, filled with the zeal and the enthusiasm that I've experienced here tonight. I can't begin to tell you what our life is like today. Happiness, joy, enthusiasm filled with love and excitement and adventure. And now in the close, I just want to say, as I reflect back on this and I look into your faces, your faces, the living flowers of the world, and I see the beauty the manifestation of the love of God. God lives. God lives in you. God lives in me. This gives me the right, the privilege to say, thank God for this thing, this difference in me, that I first realized when I was about 12 years old that led me to the disease of alcoholism, to drug addiction, to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and to you beautiful people. Only after you have experienced the terror of the dark and lonely night can you fully appreciate the beauty of the joy of the morning. Oh, my friends, my mornings are so beautiful, and I am so grateful. I am so grateful for every living and breathing moment. Every day that I wake up in the morning is a whole bonus day for me to do just as I wish. And I am firmly convinced that there is nothing that I cannot do as long as I have your strength and your hope. I want to thank you for the opportunity of coming and being with you. To each and every one of you, I want to say, God bless you. And to this God of mine, I say, how great thou art.